The following presentation was recorded live at the 2014 National Bioneers Conference. To learn more about Bioneers programs and media products, visit www.bioneers.org. We're here uh, to talk about the who and the how and to share some examples of uh, what this new world can look like. So, uh, as usual, um, Buckminster Fuller uh, put it pretty well about our, our current sort of problem with how we're approaching uh, the creation of this new world. If you are in a shipwreck and all the boats are gone, a piano top's buoyant enough to keep you afloat, a piano top buoyant enough to keep you afloat that comes along makes a fortuitous life preserver. But this is not to say that the best way to design a life preserver is in the form of a piano top. I think that we are clinging to a great many piano tops in accepting yesterday's fortuitous contrivings as constituting the only means for solving a given problem. So Bucky famously asks, if the success or the failure of this planet and of human beings depends on how I am and what I do, how would I be? What would I do? So let's, let's talk for a minute about the who. Who is involved in creating this world that we all want? Bucky suggested that the way we're gonna get there is through a design science revolution, that we need to find new approaches to solving problems and importantly, to understand ourselves as crucial actors in this design revolution narrative, that we need to radically expand our notion of what design is and who's included in it, and that we are all inherently designers, that we all have the option to engage in making the world work for 100% of humanity. So the who is all of us. For Bucky, this was a metaphysical imperative. He asserted that our capacity as local problem solvers was specific to our function in the universe. It is essential to the purpose of why we are here. The, revol the design revolution is the synthesis of the metaphysical and the physical, and I think Eve Ensler uh, spoke to this this morning. Bucky offered what I think is a very appropriate contemporary description of the indiv individuals engaged in this emerging field of whole systems design. He called himself a, a comprehensive anticipatory design scientist, which he unpacked as a synthesis of an artist, inventor, mechanic, objective economist, and evolutionary strategy strategist. So what this means is that the skill sets necessary to do this kind of work include the ability to fundamentally see and work across disciplines and keep an eye on the macro-inclusive and micro-incisive. Another pearl from Bucky, the comprehensive design scientist would not be concerned exclusively with the seat of a tractor, but with the whole concept of production and distribution of food. This is the fundamental systems approach. 
The Buckminster Fuller Institute set out to find today's comprehensive designers and to celebrate the leading edge of this work through our annual design competition, the Buckminster Fuller Challenge, which has been recognized as socially responsible design's highest award. We've been at this now for eight years. Uh, each year, we award a $100,000 prize to the entry that, in the opinion of our jury and reviewers, best embodies the whole system's entry criteria. This year's winner will be celebrated at an event in New York on November 20th. I hope you can all come and join us. It'll be a lot of fun. Um, we have seen over the last, you know, really in the last two to three years, just a huge increase in the number of people coming through our program, which is our best way to sort of, it's our, our best sort of indicator. Um, and, and, and by watching, uh, by the number of people who are watching what we're doing, but more broadly, the whole systems design approach is increasingly referenced in the global solution and design communities as the crucial approach to achieving long-term impact. We get entries from architects, designers, engineers, social entrepreneurs, artists, activists, scientists, and the issues and array of complex problems that these people are tackling, as Bucky might say, is omnidirectional. You can see for yourself there. Now, communicating a whole systems design strategy is not an easy thing to do. This stuff does not lend itself well to sound bites. It's very challenging to reduce its complexity it's very hard for us to just describe succinctly what a, a, a finalist solution is doing or how, more importantly, how they are solving a problem. Um, the work does not reward with immediate gratification of a job well done. It takes time and it takes an extraordinary amount of commitment. The Fuller Challenge is a showcase of examples. We show and tell what it looks like in the world, as you'll see um, in today's presentations. So how do people do whole systems design? What are the design frameworks for this approach? Oh. I can't even read it, okay. Uh, comprehensive design is the effective application of the principles of science to the conscious design of our total environment in order to help make the Earth's finite resources allow everybody to enjoy the whole earth. Is, the whole earth is how I think that quote ends up. Um, or more succinctly, I'm not trying to imitate nature, I'm trying to discover the principles she is using. So Bucky put forth um, a succinct, there are only 18 here, uh, principles of what he called the world game. It's too much to unpack here and we are looking to, at, at how to develop a curriculum and toolkit based on these principles, so stay tuned for that. Um, but we, as I was saying earlier, we are seeing whole systems design thinking and the grappling with what the core essential framework, how to, how to articulate the core essential framework, showing up in more and more contexts. And there are some really great organizations from the Rocky Mountain Institute, the Biomimicry Institute, the Stockholm Resilience Center, and others um, grappling with various frameworks to get at the, 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 the core aspects of this emerging field. The Education for Sustainability panel here at Bioneers just in the last session um, is exploring how to integrate these, uh, this thinking into our K through 12 educational systems. So the Amory Lovins and the Rocky Mountain Institute does a great job at describing how this thinking is applied. And I'm just gonna read a brief quote here before I hand this over. 
Whole system thinking reveals and exploits connections between parts. Whole systems designers optimize the performance of buildings, vehicles, machines, and processes by collaborating in diverse teams to understand how the parts work together as a system, then turning those links into synergies. These engineered systems similarly interact with larger systems, communities, economies, and industries and ecosystems, which also interact with each other. The more complete the design integration, spanning space, time, and disciplines, the better the result. Whole systems thinking underpins integrative design that can yield radical resource efficiency. Integrative design optimizes an entire system as a whole, rather than its parts in isolation. This can solve many problems at once, create multiple benefits from single expenditures, and yield more diverse and widely distributed benefits that help attract broader support for implementation. Our framework with the Buckminster Fuller Challenge starts with some fundamental principles. We distilled from Bucky's design science a core set of criteria to help us identify the leading examples of this work. We apply this cr criteria rigorously to figure out if, if a strategy is truly comprehensive. And the best examples that come through our challenge integrate all of these. Um, there, there's a lot of information about this on our website, which is bfi.org, um, and we go into quite extensive, um, detailed uh, unpacking of these criteria. Uh, we don't emphasize at the Buckminster Fuller Challenge how to do this work, but rather what it looks like. What are the irreducible components of a solution necessary for long-term success and impact? Uh, the top of that, sorry, uh, says whether we are able to be a complete success or failure is in such critical balance that every smallest human test of integrity, every smallest moment-to-moment -moment decision tips the scales affirmatively or negatively. So the last thing I just want to say um, that we have sort of found is a persistent pattern over the last years of the successful, the most successful whole system strategies is that these projects are driven by an individual or a team of people with a relentless commitment to find a deep and lasting solution to the problem that has touched them very deeply personally. And they, as Jane was talking about this afternoon, they continue in a very rigorous way to pose the right questions to themselves and seek to, to answer them through their work. A design framework was not necessarily the catalyst for many of these people. In other words, we find many projects submitted to our challenge that have evolved into a whole system solution. They didn't necessarily set out to do whole systems design, but rather through a persistent iterative process that continually reframes and widens the context of the problem, driven by an extraordinary commitment to get to the bottom of the problem and develop an enduringly sustainable solution, they have ended up with an integrative design. Design thinking frameworks are extremely important, but in the end, it is the individual, com the, the commitment of these individuals involved that makes the real difference. So, um, I'm going to hand this over to our three distinguished panelists who are each tackling the complex issues involved in this approach from, as I said, very, very different uh, perspectives from creating tools to aid the design community, to applying these principles, to drive the success of a 
worldwide leader in carpet tile production and sales to designing a breakthrough solution aimed at improving the lives of young girls in rural Africa. I've had the great privilege over the last year of working with Aaron Meason, the Vice President of Sustainability at Interface, and Jane Harrison, the Executive Director of Pitch Africa and Waterbank School this, this past year um, through a special Fuller Challenge uh, incubation prize that we created with Interface for the 2013 cycle. Um, and it was awarded to Waterbank School, which uh, Jean will share with you. And over the last several kind of intense weeks, we've been in a, in a deep dialogue with Don Danby, the Sustainable Design Program Manager at Autodesk, who's also a designer, um, about how to synergize all of these efforts uh, to better communicate and uh, facilitate this emerging field. Um, so Jane and Aaron and Don are going to share some of their, their work and then we're gonna talk a little bit and open it up to all of you uh, for your questions. So thank you so much for being here. I'm gonna hand it over to Jane. I'll find it. Where'd it go? So that's it. It's this, Is it? It's no, that one. There you go. You got it. Okay. Okay. So I'm just going to start with a short, this is two minutes. And it just kind of gives you a good intro into kind of what we were thinking about when we started. So I'm just going to say a word in case anybody happens to go to our website in the next few days that um, our service provider told us they'd had a security breach. So our websites are down. Sorry? Web our websites, the Pitch Africa and Waterbanks website are actually down this week, which is very inconvenient. But um, they will be up in the next three to seven days. So if anyone's interested, don't, just don't give up. So um, what I want to talk about is, you know, we, we actually started work on this project about 10 years ago. Um, 
with, uh, hold on, how do I start this? Open view slideshow, here we go. So we started work about 10 years ago and um, spent the first five years doing research and initial designs and have spent the last five years building demonstrations and examples and we've been working, uh, focusing on East Africa. And um, I really valued the experience last year of going through the Buckminster Fuller Challenge because the um, structure of the challenge really put us through a very good discipline to kind of revisit what we had been doing on the project and to articulate as clearly as we could why, in a sense, where we'd started, why we were doing what we were doing, and um, what we were trying to achieve. We, I'm trained as an architect, but the approach we took with this work was not like a conventional design practice where somebody comes to you with a problem, question, request, and so on. We started this work from a question. And one of the things that came up or came, we became involved with very early on after working on Sri Lanka was um, after the tsunami was issues of water. Um, this led to doing a lot of work on rain harvesting and we began to look at the situation in Africa because the most extreme statistics about lack of water access can be found on the African continent. But everything that I'm talking about today has application worldwide. So this is not purely an African problem by any means and it's also a problem that affects us in the United States, though we're struggling to work out what we're going to do about it, I think. The, in, in Africa, it's been estimated that there is 13 times the amount of rain falling on the continent than is needed by the population, okay? But you've got 320 million people who don't have access to water. Most of those people who are having to get water in regions where there isn't any um, available are the women and the children. And this struck us as such a perverse situation that we really wanted to revisit how that had come, you know, how on earth did this one, you know, come to be. And there was a policy taken in the 1980s um, by many organizations, including the UN, to really focus on groundwater reserves, so that includes aquifers, surface water, river water, and so on, but not rainwater. It was determined that rain couldn't be harvested in a way that made economic sense, that you couldn't get enough water for it to really make a difference to a community, and so it was disregarded, and that meant development dollars never went in that direction. So what we were very interested in, because of this very strange fact that in the very regions where people don't have water, it still rains two feet a year, even in the driest of the semi-arid regions. So, and this activity is taking something like 40 billion work hours a year. And if you think about that in terms of what that means for 
lives, education, futures, it's incalculable. So it seemed that um, it was important to think about this question differently. And that is that if, I think what we thought was, if this was a problem that could have been solved technically, it probably would have been solved. And that I think the feeling that, and this is why I really value the, the whole, the, the articulation by the Buckminster Fuller Institute of Bucky's work, that technology alone doesn't solve most of our problems. In fact, probably very few. And that most problems need some kind of social, systemic thought process and solution. Problems are usually very complex. They're there for the many different reasons. And therefore, solutions really need to be able to meet them in a kind of multivalent way. So we began working on this idea of putting together football and water. Football's the biggest attractor of communities in Africa. And we were very interested in the harvesting capacity of a small stadium. This is like a street soccer stadium. Um, and it was staggering. It was a huge amount of water. Um, if you looked at it at per capita use. And um, um, so we then, in a sense, the premise was if you take the greatest passion, put it together with one of the greatest needs, you then attract a lot of energy, a lot of attention, a lot of people. That allows you, in, place, in, in places like where we're working, which is very rural, um, we're not talking about kind of built-up towns, um, not even villages in many cases. There's this kind of sparsely populated um, rural regions where there are very few facilities, no clinics, no this, no that. And so the idea was under the stadium, you could have classrooms, you could have clinics, you could, in a sense, concentrate your resources. So we built the first example of the, I mean, we, after we developed the soccer pitch, we then also developed much smaller scale components, schools. Um, uh, this is the first water bank school that was built two years ago. Um, and this was what we had submitted for the, for, for the Buckminster Fuller uh, challenge. And this was then named Greenest School on Earth last year by the US Green Building Council. But really what is just being shown here is this was built for $8 a square foot. Even in Kenya, that is, that is cheap, even by Kenyans. I mean, it's, it's cheap. <laughs> and it was tough. But we decided that the objective, the premise of what we would consider successful design was that if you were... The idea of innovation wasn't enough. The idea had to be something that people could take up. And that if this wasn't done at the same price as the very uh, poor standard buildings that were being built, you know, barrack-shaped, four-classroom school buildings, then it probably wouldn't be able to enter into the system as a serious alternative. So we spent a lot of time working out how to bring the cost down bring the rain yields up. So this school harvests 360,000 liters of water a year in a semi-arid region. It stores it underground. Children get their annual drinking water supply. The courtyard at the center, which is over the water, is a theater 
There's a community workshop. Each of the classrooms faces onto a seed garden so that water is used to kind of teach children about propagating seeds in a region where they have a pastoralist tradition and they're not used to agriculture. So it, this is the kind of building in action. The, what we then went on to do was to build a... We've now just completed the first uh, secondary school. This includes seven different water bank building types. What you're seeing here is the canteen building under construction. This building, which is now completed, doubles as what we call a soil bank. So the reason we're calling these water banks and soil banks is we want to introduce the idea that our natural resources have to be understood as one, something that all people have rights to, and that they need to be, in a sense, treasured in the way that we are very used to treasuring our banks. So um, the soil bank also, this, so the, there is a canteen, a kitchen here, but it is also a place where the students are taught about soil composting processes and so on, because th this is a very degraded area, very, um, deforested, a lot of desertification. So when we talk about designing a building, for us it is about designing and somehow bearing in mind not just the physical structure that you build, but what are the processes that are going into making it, where do the materials come from, why are they coming from there, who's building it, what difference does it make to them, how do the people use it? How are you going to keep the community interested? And, and how do you use a building to generate an economic shift and a social shift in a community? And so that is, this diagram is a kind of an early diagram we did that was kind of trying to talk about what we meant by place. Um, this is another kind of illustration of how we're thinking about the design of a building. You've got the kind of figure of the kind of early version of, of the pitch structure there. And it's as if it's a kind of an engine. It's like the rain comes down. You harvest the rain, but then what does that make possible? It means that you can grow crops. If you make selections about the crops you grow, it means that you might be able to set up some micro-enterprise opportunities local to that building. Um, it allow, that because we're using, or in a sense, doubling up on the use of the building as a school, um, it Im increases access to education and so on and so forth. Um, we just completed something which I wanted to spend just a few minutes on. Have I got two minutes? Okay. Waterbank Girls Dormitory. This is something that we are now working on with the Clinton Global Initiative um, as well. And... Uh, it houses 100 girls, <clears throat> and there it is built around... It, again, this was done for about $8, $10 a square foot. And in the center, you have a triangular courtyard. It's harvesting... This is still under construction, but it's harvesting 360,000 liters of water. That is a supply of water that is particularly dedicated to those 100 girls in a year. That is far more water than girls normally get in Kenya. Normally, they're the last in line, first to, first to collect it, last in line to get it. Um, what this does, by putting the water at the center of a completely secure courtyard, with a matron's house there that you can see pictured, with a sanitation facility, with a shower, is that it allows the comprehensive problems that are keeping girls out of secondary schools, 
which are very complex, which have to do with kind of gender status. It has to do with feminine, you know, management of menstrual hygiene. It has to do with um, just general ill health and so on and so forth. What this is doing is creating a place for these girls that can serve as a kind of sanctuary for them. This is being developed as a garden with the girls now that will have medicinal plants and various other things that they decide they, they want to have. But they, because of having this water, it makes everything possible. So I'm just finishing up. This, <laughs> this, uh, so th this is looking at the school from the outside. And what you will see here in about six months' time is conservation agriculture beds running right up to the building. So the entire campus is a series of seven buildings which are linked together by these conservation agriculture beds. So and this was just a reminder that before we forget, we must never forget this. Okay, thank you. Hello, Bioneers. My name is Erin Mizan. I'm glad to be here. Um, it was such a fantastic, uh, has, has been a fantastic day for me. Every time I see Paul speak, I come away sort of with a new appreciation, not just of mushrooms, but the interconnectedness of things, right? It was just a fantastic morning. Um, and, and as we were talking this morning and thinking about how do we imagine the future that we want and what is our role? As someone who works in the business world, um, I spend a fair bit of time thinking about that. And in, in this morning, I was reflecting a bit on what are those operating conditions that our business in particular is trying to implement as we move towards the future. And I think about things like, what if environmental stewardship was demanded of every business and not just a nice to have? Um, what if the operating model for business was inclusive business? Um, what if that meant that every business was closely connected to communities around the world and organized in a way that impacted them positively? You know, what would that look like? So today I sort of wanted to share a pilot project that Interface has been working on with the Zoological Society of London and Aquafil over the past year and a half because it's changed our thinking as a business about what we think our future is, what we think the future model of business is. And it's our first foray into this larger conversation of how might we as a business design a solution to a larger problem that isn't just our environmental problem, but a larger societal problem. I 
always believe that you can do business at the same time, contributing for very serious objectives like cleaning the oceans of marine debris. So it's that a charity. This is an enterprise, a social enterprise. Networks is a programme that takes discarded fishing nets from coastal communities and arranges the recycling of those fishing nets back into carpet fibre that we can use in our modular flooring. What we're doing with Networks is creating a new and innovative and practical example of an inclusive business model. Groups from the communities go out into the environment and collect nets off the beaches or from the sea and they get nets from fishers at the end of life to prevent them from getting into the environment in the first place. As a group, the community then sell the nets into a global supply chain and they're regenerated into nylon yarn that can then be used to make some very beautiful products such as Interfaces carpet tires. Developing inclusive business is not about philanthropic giving. We're doing this to demonstrate that there is a better way of doing business. What we want to do with networks is ensure that as much of the value of the nets is retained within the community in order for the communities to benefit as much as possible. They realise that instead of just throwing their nets on the ocean or just anywhere, it is something that they can earn from. So, na minus-minus ang mga basura kay ang mga membro mo participate man sa makooperate man sa pagpanguha sa pukot ng mga basura. Through these network projects, some values and attitude actually change. Attitude change is quite difficult to convince because it comes from inside the person. But if one's shown you know, doing that change, it's really a miracle happening. Saving is not something that they're you know, used to do. It is something that they not even know it's possible. The ability to save money kind of helped them to plan for the future, especially as I observe, they're more looking into the education of their children. Sa akong mga anak ng lima, maugunay kanunay na kong gitanom sa ilang huna-huna nga unsa ang network, unsa kay importante. Network, nga pinakamaayo, nga project, dili ilang para na ako o para sa anak nila. It's a huge achievement to have got to where we have got to and to be able to sit here today and look around at all the huge quantity of nets that are here and realise the amount of work that's actually gone into that. I think it's been a huge success. So success for me for the Networks programme, having now established that the initial programme is viable, is to expand that beyond. To also influence the broader manufacturing community to explore inclusive business opportunities in their supply chain. And we're very pleased to say that ZSL has just been awarded two three-year programmes from the Darwin Initiative to fund marine conservation in two remote areas. And networks will be an integral part of those programs. Well, it's very, very fulfilling to be involved in a project like Networks because that puts you in a situation where you can actually initiate some sort of paradigm shifting. So looking at plastics from a different angle. Now, when people start looking at plastics in pesos and dollar terms, that's probably one thing we should be initiating all over the world we can address the issue of plastics worldwide.
Thank you. So just a little um, introduction into, sorry, we've got about a million PowerPoint slides here. <laughs> there we go. Um, just a little introduction to sort of um, our first foray into this exploration of what does it mean to solve a larger problem. So just a quick summary on how it works and why it's different. And you heard our chief innovation officer in the movie, Nigel Stansfield, say very clearly this is not philanthropy. So all of those horrible words that have been coined over the last two decades by companies to describe what they're doing on sustainability, philanthropy, donation, corporate social responsibility, this fundamentally is not that. This is about sort of creating a system where we can find new value and integrating the work of those communities into an overall business model that works for everyone. So we've put in place systems and um, teams on the ground in the Philippines who are responsible for outreach to communities who will do the training for collecting and cleaning of the nets. Um, we've established a supply chain agreement by negotiating with our fiber supplier, Aquafil, and local communities so that they are in a direct supplier relationship, um, a paid contract where once the nets are collected, the communities are paid, and we've essentially backed out of that um, situation. We've established agreements around shipping. Um, we've established agreements with our supplier that we will buy that recycled yarn, and in a certain amount of quantities, we will make a commitment to put as much recycled yarn as we can back into our products. So it truly is sort of not a one-time beach cleanup, not a donation, not corporate social responsibility, but really trying to figure out how do we solve a complex problem, um, bringing the perspective of business, and what would it really take? Um, some really interesting sort of things about this. Um, the first is it requires a fundamental sort of a fundamental arrangement that's really different than how we've done business in the last 20 years. Um, it requires us to find those partners that bring a different level of expertise, a different perspective, a different capability than we're maybe used to working with. Um, we spoke about the Zoological Society of London as being one of the key partners in this. Um, an organization that on the ground in the Philippines provides a lot of training, does a lot of conservation programs, they were a key partner in helping us sort of structure and launch the program and ultimately will be the vehicle where this model is taken to other communities. We mentioned in the video that they've gotten some funding from Darwin. The next place where we'll be taking this project is actually to Cameroon to sort of test the model. Um, and so I think a really interesting question is, and one that we're all gonna struggle with as we think about how do we scale solutions like this, is the need for these unique partners, but also the need for kind of new systems and structures to be put in place. When we first started working on networks, there existed no system in some of the 26 villages that we were working in where we could actually return payment to the villagers for the nets. So working with a couple local organizations, a community banking organization, and the Zoological Society of London, we created some infrastructure to be able to just deliver that first initial financial mechanism. And what became really interesting is, over the course of the last year and a half, when our pilots were happening in the Philippines, I'm sure you're aware, um, you know, they encountered some major uh, 
weather events that severely impacted the community, an earthquake and a typhoon. And what we found was very, very interesting is the system that we had structured to initially deliver payment for the net system became another vehicle by which aid could be delivered. Kind of showing that there are all these additional benefits that sort of pop up when you never realize it. But once you put in place that sort of essential infrastructure, how that can be sort of used and expanded to sort of the deeper benefit of the community. It was a really interesting learning for us. Um, and I just sort of wanted to share, you know, this is, we are a very small company. We have 5,000 people globally. We're publicly traded. We're a 40-year-old company. And with one pilot project, only for a year and a half, we can start to see results like this. So it makes me ask, what if every company did this? The sort of the power of what could we do together? And, um, you know, just a little interesting um, anecdote here is that just within the first year of the program, we've reached almost as many people as we have global employees. Uh, so it's sort of really interesting indication of what you can do even as a small business. Um, and so the interesting question for us is, uh, where do we go next? And, and a lot of uh, time I get asked sort of, how did you get here? And, and I want to sort of share that for those of you who don't know the story, um, the company got to this place through a very interesting evolution. I'm our, I'm our vice president of sustainability. We are a company that makes this stuff. We make carpet. We're 40 years old. We're an American company. We're publicly traded. But 20 years ago, the company underwent a really drastic transformation because one person changed their thinking. It happened to be the founder. And if some of you have been to Bioneers and you were here, you know Ray. This is a picture of our founder, Ray Anderson. Um, he was here with me five or six years ago and told his story. And it's an incredibly powerful story about transformation of thinking. In his 60th year of being on this planet, um, about 20 years ago, Interface got a question from a customer that we could not answer, and we lost business. It was one of the first large green building projects that was happening in California, and a green building consultant had asked our salespeople, what is your company doing for the environment? And we did not have an answer. We didn't really even understand the question, uh, to be fair. So we, we lost the job. We didn't understand the question. He said, you don't get it. And it got back to our founder, Ray Anderson. And he said, like most companies do, let's create an environmental task force. And let's figure out how to answer this question. And a task force was formed. And the first thing they did was go back to Mr. Anderson and say, we will work this problem out. We want you to come to the meeting where we kick off the task force and give us your environmental vision. And he didn't, he didn't have an environmental vision. And you know the famous story goes, he had committed to come, he kept putting off writing the speech, and a very fortuitous thing happened. Paul Hawkins' book, The Ecology of Commerce, made its way to his desk from a salesperson in California. And he read the book and had what he described as an epiphanal experience. And I think two things really impacted him. The first was the plight of the planet, the second was the culprit, which was his institution. And the hope in that book, in the ecology of commerce for Ray, was that there is an institution that is powerful enough, pervasive enough, can, can change things quickly enough, and has the money 
to sort of make big change, and, and that's the institution of business. So he underwent a fundamental transformation and 20 years ago committed the company to become a sustainable and ultimately a restorative enterprise. And I wanted to share this. This drawing on the right is a drawing that he made when he sat down to sort of communicate to the rest of our company the enormity of this task. And he likened it to if a company like ours who is dependent on oil and petroleum could become sustainable and restorative, it would be like climbing Mount Everest, which we termed Mount Sustainability. And this is sort of the, the mission that we adopted as a company 20 years ago and has really fueled our evolution towards this sort of bigger thinking. And once you get into that, you know, five years into that, 10 years into that, you start solving problems. You waste less, you try to be more efficient as a company, you do what a lot of us have done at home. You try to lessen your footprint. Um, but the deeper you dig into that and you start saying, how is it that we fundamentally reduce our impact? How do we fundamentally lower the impact of this business and make change? You realize that you're in a much larger system and you can change your part of the system, but you are operating in this much larger context, a context of environmental damage, a context of social injustice, and you start to challenge yourselves to say, how do I solve the bigger problems? How do, I, how do I address not just the mission that the company is on? So for example, how does a company like ours lower our footprint? 85% of the footprint of our products has nothing to do with us in the sense that it comes from our upstream fiber suppliers. How do we recycle our products? How do we get products back and make new products with recycled content? Well, we don't make the yarn. So what we can do is we can have a fantastic take-back program from customers, but ultimately, again, we've got to shift something in our supply chain and change that thinking. And I think what's so interesting about the time we find ourselves in now and the types of projects like Networks and the types of projects that, that uh, Jane and David are working on Waterbanks is there's a growing realization in the business world, in the design world, that we fundamentally are positioned to solve these bigger challenges. And people are starting to do it. But I don't think there's a common language, and I don't think there's a common set of tools. But what's really inspiring is that businesses are starting to acknowledge that they exist in a broader context and must not just solve their sustainability problems, but need to sort of address these larger contextual issues. And in that regard, what we are doing is very much aligned with architects and designers who are solving social problems in Africa, um, non-governmental organizations who are solving marine waste problems in the Philippines. It's a really interesting time as we reflect back on this morning and say, how are we designing kind of the world we want to live in? What's really interesting is I see a lot more designers now. I see companies starting to engage in that design. We see architects and designers. With, that is a large core customer of Interface, and we are increasingly hearing them say, we need to not just design buildings based around building performance, but we need to design buildings that do something bigger, that solve a bigger challenge. So I'm really delighted to sort of be here today to talk about this project, to share what we're doing, but also fundamentally to sort of engage in a conversation with you about how do we scale that? How do we accelerate that? What are the tools that we need? Um, and related to that, one ask I have of you is to share, oops, and I just did it too quickly. 
Um, the one ask I have of you is to sort of share this model. Share what we're doing. Um, oh, crikey. Now it's just like, I'm in someone's email now. I'll get it up at the end. I'm going to send you all an email and ask you to share it. Um, but yeah, it's to sort of share what we're doing. And, and please, please, please um, become an active participant in this conversation. Thank you. Dear. Okay. It just completely. Oh like my God. Haywire. All right. Oh, there Let's we just go. get my email okay. off. Okay. Um, Yeah,ちゃんとやったらいいですね。いや、ちゃんとやったらいいですね。いや、ちゃんとやったらいいですね。いや、ちゃんとやったらいいですね。いや、ちゃんとやったらいいですね。いや、ちゃんとやったらい
the carbon impacts that it might have, the materials or water impacts it might have, which is very, very powerful, except when you get into the challenge of people not even understanding those concepts in the first place, which is interesting, right? You go into schools and people don't understand those kinds of basic principles. So we have had a huge focus, not only on creating tools that allow you to start to estimate um, the energy impact of something, I mean, this, is, these are, this essentially shows a series of scenarios of, um, of how much energy a building will use, but, uh, but also helping, under, helping our customers, which are over 10 million professional customers and over 100 million users worldwide, all making material decisions every day. How do we get them to understand those, those implications and those decisions? Um, and we have people who make remarkable things. I mean, this is a, this is a company, in our, we have a number of clean tech companies that we support uh, by giving them free software and, and really help them develop new technologies uh, for, for the time that we're in. You know? and, it, and it really does come down to technical things. That is really our constituency. Our, Focus, or is a focus on people who are very technical, but make decisions that are very substantial. How do you make a tracking system on solar panels to make the best use of the sun and their position in regard to the sun? That, those kinds of decisions are really fundamental. And so supporting those industries is really important to us. But as I was saying, one of the biggest issues that we've run into is, and that, that we all run into, is that people don't understand the system. And so um, you know, I started a, a program a few years ago really looking at, at these questions around what does, what does sustainability mean in the context of if, you, if, you're, you know, if you're a product designer, right? You're making, you're making decisions to make mobile phones. Most people who work in creating these kinds of products don't understand that every time, for any, every kilogram of, of material you use, you've got over 80 kilograms of waste, right? Um, and so what that means is that if you're able to make something last for twice as long, you cut that waste down, you save that much amount. If you're able to make something last 10 times as long, that's an enormous amount of waste upstream that you're avoiding. But it means that you have to understand things in terms of that whole life cycle. You need to know that when you're making a decision, there's an extraction that's taking place. And if you're making something that it can't be taken apart, you're encapsulating all of that really high value material into something and it's stuck there forever. And those are design decisions, right? And those are design decisions in the context of these big systems of supply chains and of extraction that for some crazy reason, most engineers and designers just don't see. You know? And so we've, we've spent a lot of time really trying to help them see those kinds of things so that they can use tools, but quite frankly, the biggest and most important tool is not the software they're using, but it's their heads and the way that they work with one another. Right? That the, the, the collaboration across different, different sectors, getting the designers and the engineers and the business people and the supply chain people and all these different nerdy people to work together to create some really dramatically different things. Right? And we've looked at, we looked at a lot at this, actually this is rendering really badly, so I will, I will zoom past it, but we've looked a lot at how to teach people about um, whole systems, to be able to map systems and then begin to understand where they, as a designer, as an engineer, have the greatest potential impact, and then start coming up with solutions that can be transformative, not just by adding a new recycled material, but actually transforming the way that they really think about the problem in the first place. So we've got a bunch of things on a, on a site called the Sustainability Workshop that explains this more in depth that you'll be able to see a little bit better than is showing up on the screen right now. 
But when we look at, at these kinds of problems, systemic problems, looking at something like e-waste, for instance, you know, there's a really interesting question of like, how does a designer start addressing those kinds of problems? How, you know, where's, where's the role of the designer in e-waste, right? And uh, there's, there's a few things that I found really, really interesting, but I think that there's an, an even more interesting transformative area that's, that's emerging. Um, I have a friend who, who runs this, this company called iFixit. Do you guys know them? No? You, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if, if you were all like, uh, like software engineer people, <laughs> it is, a, it is a, uh, a website that gives you really detailed instructions on how to repair and disassemble uh, electronics. Pretty much any, any electronic you could find in the market, and they'll actually sell you the parts um, and the tools to take them apart. And why I love this image, even though I, I don't think you can see it that well, is that it shows an iPad 2. Okay, from a few years ago. They, what they do, these guys, is they go in and they, they do what's called a product teardown. They'll take apart these products and show you what's inside them. But they'll also rate how easy it is to take apart these different things on the market. And this one I find fascinating because it requires a heat gun at a very, very specific temperature to go all around the adhesive, around the edges, and then you have to get a series of guitar picks and stick them under the glass. And then you have to lift the glass off very, very, very carefully at a very small fraction of the time. It'll come off without shattering. And you need to have a can of Red Bull to steal you <laughs> for the experience. Right? That's where we're putting our most valuable metals, our most valuable uh, and hard-to-reach resources. You want to talk about the problem of e-waste. This is where it happens. And these are business these are business decisions and business and also business opportunities. I, I love these guys because they're this amazing hack. They're like a wonderful band-aid on the whole system. They reveal and they're transparent about what all these different companies are doing in order to push the industry towards one where that celebrates repair and long-lasting, right? It's yeah. We love that. But one of the, th the groups that I was so excited to hear about this year is that they're actually working with is a group called Fairphone. Do you guys know them? No? Do you, some of you? So, so interesting. So again, looking at the same problem of, well, the same set of problems around e-waste, but not only that, conflict metals, right? And so what these guys did, they're not, they actually had no experience in smartphone design, but they decided to create the first Fairtrade smartphone, which meant that the first place they had to go was into, uh, into the mining operations in Africa to be able to start sourcing from the inside out fair trade metals. And so what they were doing was in fact designing the supply chain out uh, from that and then inward, inward, inward to creating a product that they could actually sell, um, which I think is so cool. You know, it's, it's such an interesting and different way of doing things because you're looking at designing for a system and then, um, and then designing all the mechanics and everything down afterwards, which is fascinating. Um, let's see, in a few more minutes, I, I wanted to talk in a lot of, in a sense about some of the things that, that we're really tackling. We know that, um, we know that climate is one of our, one of the major planetary boundaries that, that we have exceeded and, um, and so one of, the, one of the big questions that we've got right now is how can we be designing for 100% of the people on this planet but be steering them towards designing for zero? 
um, and by that we mean for net zero carbon. Um, and the reason we need to do that is we effectively have an 800 gigaton carbon budget. That's the amount of carbon we can admit into the atmosphere. We have no overdraft protection for that. And, um, and we've, we've admitted somewhere north of 530 uh, gigatons to date. And we're rapidly using up that budget. And so, you know, that is a mega number. It usually causes our, our heads and our hearts to spin. And really, really hard to contextualize that, turn that into design solutions. But I think it is, in a sense, the major design constraint that we are all addressing and that we all have to tackle. Um, and I think we can see that much more clearly than we've ever been able to see anything. Um, that, or that we've ever been able to see it to date, you know. Um, and so I'm very heartened to see the kind, a range of different projects out there that are, that are working even at that individual designer, individual company phase to be able to make those changes and to be able to affect those big numbers. Um, I love this project, BioLite, but I should just say, I mean, it, there are a number of different cook stove projects around the world. This is a, a group of people who have developed a clean cook stove. Um, and in fact, they have two clean cook stoves. They've got uh, this one for consumers, and then, they, and then what that does is raise enough money to then subsidize the ones that they have for various developing world contexts. What they're doing is seeking to, to radically de decrease the amount of black carbon going into the atmosphere and also human health outcomes, as you guys probably know. And these kinds of projects, um, as I said, you know, this is part of a network of groups who are tackling the problem of needing clean cook stoves around the world. Um, but for this kind of project to come off, you need to, have, uh, you, you need to have amazing designers, you need to have brilliant engineers, you need to have a business model that makes sense, you need to have a deep understanding and empathy uh, for designing with the community that you're designing for, right? That it's a collaboration with them as well. Um, to start to actually yield projects that, that begin to really tackle the kinds of problems that we're, that we're facing. Um, and so I bring that up really because it is in my belief, even though we, we talk, you know, I, one of the challenges I've got is that I work through the lens of technology, but my bias is in fact that the biggest solutions are with people, or with the way we work, or with our access to knowledge about solutions um, and how we communicate with one another. You know, and projects like this and other ones that we're talking about, they work, they come about because of the way that people are able to now communicate. Um, about the kinds of solutions that they're creating. So with that, thank you so much. Thank you, you guys. <laughs> Three uh, very, very powerful uh, uh, examples of this much-needed approach. Um, I'm just looking at the time here. We have about 20 minutes, um, and I want to make sure that all of you have uh, time for, for to ask the panelists uh, your questions. Um, I, you know, we talked about a lot of different things during lunch, and I guess um, just building on the last thing you said, Dawn, about uh, relationships, unconventional partnerships, the way in which you've had to function and operate. Um, I'm just wondering if you can 
if each of you can kind of speak to how those three things really um, are essential to what you're what you're trying to do. Whoever wants to. Sure. Um, so, you know, from our perspective, I was really struck actually this morning by Nina's comments. And the, the sort of thing that really resonated with me was the power of relationships and developing those relationships. And, you know, as, as we get to the phase we are in the company where we start to try to design solutions for this larger context, we cannot do that alone based on our size, based on our knowledge, based on the fact that we're a bunch of American carpet makers um, that happen to have manufacturing around the world. And so, the, you know, you, you would think that sort of the barriers might be funding or technology or even imagination, but I, but I think actually one of the biggest barriers is our lack of connectedness to these communities, to the other problem solvers. Um, and, and what's really hopeful for me is how incredibly easy that is to change. So this networks project, the initial connection on those nets came about when someone in our London innovation team was, was grappling with how do we solve this challenge of redesigning our supply chain in a way that addresses environmental and social issues that are in the broader context. And she said, I'm actually going to have a meeting and I'm going to invite the smartest, most creative people that I know, and we're gonna talk about the problem. And someone from the Zoological Society of London showed up and said, did you actually happen to know that the same type of nylon in carpet is um, the same kind of grade nylon that goes into fishing nets? And that was the connection. That was the genesis of the entire conversation. And he said, let me tell you about some of the work we're doing in the Philippines around seahorse habitat conservation and how impacted it is by these marine nets. Maybe you could use these nets. So I think this disconnectedness is such a huge problem with such an easy solution. Um, it's that power of relationship and, and our story to me is really inspirational because you just never know, how, you know where that next idea will come from. So what I'd like to say, I mean, there's a lot of things I could say on relationships, <laughs> but I think what I must talk about is that uh, when we built the Waterbank School and, um, well, we entered into a lot of relationships to be able to design it in the first place, to get into a situation where we could spend the time thinking about it. Um, all of these things were all very important, but the but the you know the nature of what we are facing right now is really interesting. I mean, we've got these buildings that are kind of they're built, they work, they harvest the rain, they you know it goes in the tank, there's water. But what's happening? And we knew this would happen. We didn't know in what form it would happen. But um, the Waterbank School started to exhibit leaks in the tank. And we spent rather a lot of time looking into these leaks. You know, were they cracks in the tank? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, after a while we learned that they were, well, were what we now refer to as social leaks. Because what's happening is that on the weekends, the community are going into the courtyard, filling up their water supplies, rolling them down the road, 
and the water in the tanks is being used up. Now, we're in East Africa. This is a post-colonial, hugely complicated area where land ownership is a nightmare. And still, 50% of the land is owned by whites or white Kenyans uh, or conservancies that don't let the local tribes on their land. So it's one of the most complicated areas um, that we probably could have picked to work. And one of the issues that, that is happening is that um, the school, the headmasters, they know that if they drain the tanks that some NGO is going to show up with a tank of water to fill it back up again. And so there is an economy that grows up in these kinds of relationships. And I'm sure there's aspects to the, you know, the, the in incredible complexity that kind of underpins really any effort to kind of try to shift things. And so now we're working, you know, we, we, we talked to, um, well, we, we went through this issue with a, 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 somebody I respect very much in Kenya, uh, uh, one of the top environmental journalists, and he said, look, Jane, this is, in Kenyan style, this is a success. What this shows is that the water has value. Now, the thing that we knew when we set about this project was that what we were really asking communities to do was to develop a system of governance for their own water supply and an understanding that they were in, that this was something that they needed to do, that they could do, that they have to take responsibility for it. And so now are the beginning stages of a water council, and you know, how does that happen, and who, you know, so that the relationship thing goes on forever. It's, in other words, there were the easy relationships at the front end, and now it's like, it's really trying to get these things to, to stick. But, I also believe that if we cannot figure out how to govern our resources in these ways, that we are really very far up a pole. So we, we, we somehow have to get with this program. I don't know how it's going to happen. But. <laughs> I just want to listen to Jane talk about that. I, um, the thing that came to mind in, in talking about, uh, about collaboration and, and people working together is I'm often surprised at... The um, you know at least in the work that that I've been involved in the last few years, the people who you you would think would be completely aligned, um, sometimes are not because the of a, quite frankly a, a difference in jargon, you know that we that I I worked for for several years with a guy who's a mechanical engineer and it was so wonderful uh, because it was kind of like having another brain. My background is industrial design, and so we both had been trained to create objects and get them made somehow, right? But come from completely different trainings and approaches, and it, and it was staggering how differently um, the language was. And so that is manifest in our industries, is that you've got people attempting to work together ostensibly on similar things, but they have completely different ways of talking about what they do. And, and so a huge amount of the work that I feel, find myself doing in the last few years is saying, okay, I know about sustainable design, and I've, you know, I've, I've taken in all of the, the Bill McDonough stuff and all of the this stuff and that stuff and all the books and all the people that you've seen at Bioneers, and yet that hasn't necessarily translated to engineers, right? It hasn't necessarily translated to technical people. And so that's been a really interesting challenge for me around that, this question of collaboration. We talk about how do you do it? 
is, is actually in sitting down and really working to see where the person you're trying to work with, what's the kind, what do they value? How do they think about and how do they talk about uh, what's important to them? And how do you then find that, that place in the, in the middle? Because I, when I first started working on this stuff with engineers, what I found over and over is that I would go in and I'd be like, we're gonna talk about sustainability. And they would say, what are you talking about? We already do that, that's all we do. That's all we do. And they, they would find it incredibly insulting because from their perspective, they were focused on optimizing efficiency. And so that was what they were doing already. And, um, and so that was a, that's a real question of building trust and also building um, a bridge of language that I think is really important. Um, I, there's so much more to dig into, but I, I really know that you all have some questions and we can certainly, we can pull it back to conversation between all of us um, if you guys don't have any questions, but I would imagine some of you do. So there's microphones uh, around. Um, you just were handed the first one, so. Yeah. <clears throat> Hi, this is a personal question for all of you guys. Um, no, no, no. What's your greatest failure in your work? And I ask that not just to shame you guys for it, but just because that's one of the biggest, that's one of the biggest fears that we have as artists and designers and scientists in our work is, is failing, as if that's the end of everything, when that's actually arguably the beginning of a design process, is kind of trying to figure out a failure. So what was that for you? And and how did that kind of play into the greater arc and the scheme of your work? It's a good one. Who would like I, to? I, I learned to get quite friendly with failure <laughs> very early on. I, I find it a lot less stressful. You know, I think it's, um, I mean, it's a very good question, but I think, you know, I, I taught at Princeton for 10 years and, um, I was involved in a debate called the F word, which was about that issue because Princeton students were like, it was like, it was no go zone. I mean, you just didn't do that kind of stuff. And so they were a bit shocked to have these people sitting up there talking about their very, being quite happy with it. I mean, I, I just, I think when you take on difficult issues, you just do the best you can. I mean, it's a bit like Bucky, but I mean, I think that what he said was, you just have to kind of decide what you're going to do while you're here. And um, I don't know that I even categorize things in that way anymore. I might have done it one time, but I mean, there are so many on the one hand. I mean, I could say, I mean, I, I, you know, I could bore everybody with a long, long, long list. I'm not sure what my favorite failure is. But, uh, Goodness. You? Anyone? Nobody wants to fess up. Uh, Nobody. Are we? Are, are we switching? Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I will. I will. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I mean, I think. Um, I think one of the one of the things that is really true if you're creating things, uh, and especially if you're, uh, you know, it's very very well known in, in designer among designers is that we never feel like anything is done to the level that we want it to be. You know, it's it's very common. I think it's what. So what drives us towards excellence? <laughs> it's, it's what keep, keeps us in the game in some ways. Um, you know, I mean, it, when I was I was pretty early in my career, I worked on a um, on a project that 
um, that basically was a, it was like a pedestrian bridge and it had trees on it and, and renewable energy and a bunch of things. And when you talk about it, it actually sounds a lot more fabulous than it actually turned out to be. And, um, and, and yet it took like a year and a half of my life to work on this thing. And from, in some respects, like the, the thing itself didn't succeed nearly the way that we wanted it to, right? It was not the magical green project that we had intended. Um, you know, the successes may have been longer term in, in terms of they, get, they got the community thinking about stuff. But, um, but you know, when we looked at, at projects like that, we're always like, oh, but we could have done this and this and this and this and this, and we only did this little bit. Um, I, and, you know, and I, I think that, that as the designers, our, our work is full of things like that, is being able to say, yeah, we got, we got these sustainability pieces in that we wanted. We didn't get them all this first time, unfortunately, you know. I just wanted to kind of ask the question and bring up the dirty word of um, planned obsolescence. It seems that um, part of a company's intention is to continue to sell products. And so there's this kind of dialectic, if you will, between renewing ideas and things that go bad so that you can sell more. And I just wanted to know how people are thinking about that now in the new concept of design. Hmm, that's a good question. Me? Me first? Well, uh, we have a really, I mean, we have a really interesting history with that. I would say 10 years ago, um, we, you know, we really challenged ourselves actually thinking about um, an exercise we had done internally um, that was really aligned with kind of a Buckminster Fuller approach and said, you know, if we are not a company who can make something in a sustainable way in a sustainable world, you know, we shouldn't exist. And that is still a, still an internal conversation we challenge ourselves with, but it presupposes that you're making stuff. So you have to step back and say, what is it that we provide? And could we provide that in a way where we make less stuff stop making stuff, shift the ownership of stuff. And so we've tried throughout the years um, various approaches. And one, one of the first ones was a product of service approach. You know, it was the idea that we would lease you. We would lease an institution, a business, carpet. Because they don't want to really, who really wants to own carpet, right? You, you, want, you want acoustics or you want softness or you want color or you want a feel that it provides. And so we had this amazing, what we thought was an innovative offer. And I think in the first two years, we had this many customers, okay? And it was because we, we completely underestimated the system of buying carpet on their end, on the customer end. And we just simply could not break through to this idea of we thought we had solved the problem, but what we fundamentally didn't solve was um, how they were used to paying for the stuff. Not the stuff, but how they were used to paying for the stuff. And the lease approach didn't work. And it's constantly been a struggle. We resurrect it, honestly, unsuccessfully every couple of years. 
um, and we try like a different segment of customers and and we really have you know challenged ourselves to get beyond that at the same time we have a product design group who's experimenting with things like projection you know so there's some really interesting advances in technology of can we just project a floor can we project the appearance of a floor and then at the same time on the other side of that there's there's an increasing need to sort of say if we're going to make stuff can we make stuff that has a bunch of different functional purposes can it be a communication system can it track um, patient care in a hospital can it be smart can it um, you know be a security system so I think we're experimenting quite frankly on either end of that um, but but we really do need to sort of fundamentally have some customer support and recognition that they don't need this stuff they don't need to own this stuff I agree that it has a lot to do with the business model the, the, the business model is, is really central to the question of plan obsolescence because if a company says okay you want you know we want these electronics that we're making that I was talking about earlier to be repairable that's not hard to do. It's not a big challenge from an engineering perspective. It's much harder to figure out how to make a really, really skinny iPhone than it is to figure out how to make something that comes apart. It's not an engineering problem, it's a business model problem. And, um, and so I think, you know, I, I wish I was seeing more of that kind of business model experimentation that Aaron was talking about, because I think that um, particularly in areas where we're talking about seriously extractive industries, um, we need to be thinking about those full, that full life cycle. I mean, at the moment, we are creating buildings that are, that are effectively planned obsolescence as well, right? And so how do you design buildings in such a way that they can be flexible, that they change over time, that they age well, that they can be transformed and upgraded as opposed to being waste, which is how we build most things globally right now. So I, I, think, it's a, I think it's a central thing um, that applies across a lot of industries. The... I, I, I hate for it to get to the point where it's not just a handful of people inside these big corporations being like, well, it's actually getting really hard to come, up, come upon some of these metals, so now we have to change things because it's really hard to get that stuff. Um, you know, you've got companies that, that make electronics that have been saying that, pockets of them have been saying that for 10 years, 15 years, and it still hasn't changed their business model. Um, so it, I, I think it, it is core, and, uh, and it'll be interesting, too, how that starts to then affect consumers. But I do think it's business-led, quite frankly. I think it's on the businesses. I, I don't want to blame consumers for this at all. <laughs> I don't agree with that. No? Can I ask I a question? the problem with it is that it's, it, it, is a, it was a, a very insidious kind of policy developed in the 19... I mean, it was a very consciously developed policy in the 1950s. Yeah. It's just that we've all become so complicit in it now. I mean, we all like our shops and our this and our that. And, you know, I think the problem is, is, is what's quite frightening about it is just how complex it is. And I suppose the question is always, you know, what, what is it that we would need to do as individuals? Even if we're not, you know, what is it that we do that we don't even realize we're doing that is contributing to that system being able to kind of stay in place. Because, quite frankly, if we all rejected it, it would probably, they, it, you know, it would, it would kind of die out. But we don't reject it. And that's the very confronting thing to look at, I think. I don't disagree with you, actually. Yeah. You know, I, I think that, um, yeah, 
I, I, I don't disagree with you. I think that the uh, it's, it's it's only when we start saying it's all about consumer choice yeah. no, I know. that I feel like it gives no, that, it gives that, corporations a free yeah it gets them <laughs> off the hook, and I don't think that's yeah. reasonable. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for your presentations. By the way, um, I just had a quick question. Uh, perhaps uh, Don might have some perspective on this, and. Uh, you mentioned work around um, mechanical engineering and people, professional class, uh, engineering, material science, that type of thing. I'm just curious, um, is there a place for a discussion about Jevons paradox or the rebound effect mm. in these efforts to um, accelerate efficiency mm -hmm. at all? Is there some kind of empirical measurement of that or is that discussed? It is sometimes, but it's fairly nerdy, and I think it's an important concept. Um, I don't know if I, you might actually be better at, at explain, uh, explaining it than I am, but I, I think that, oh, go, go very, Okay, very briefly, William Jevons, mm -hmm. uh, he uh, came up with a, 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 an idea in the 18, 1800s, and it is that for every, for every incremental increase in efficiency, there's a geometric increase in inputs, and that's empirically been proven. Uh, 25% of all energy uses for lighting, for example. Lighting is a great example of Jevons' paradox. As the efficiency keeps uh, hockey stick increasing, the actual consumption of lighting uh, is increases uh, orders of magnitude. Yeah. So if you get a 10% increase in the efficiency of lighting, you'll get a doubling of lighting. Yeah. I don't think it's, I mean, it, it, the only reason I say it's, it's one of those things that, uh, that's like a, a nerdy conversation is that, you know, we're, uh, uh, it comes up absolutely, um, but I'm not sure how much it comes up among regular consumers. Um, I think it's, but I think it's really, really important to understand that the notion of the rebound effect, because I think that we assume. I see it said all the time: is that we just we just need to make make things more efficient, and more efficient, and we're going to get to this magical place of <laughs> magical balanced efficiency, which is not the case. We tend to then consume more. Um, if you faster could think more. faster, yeah, and yeah. and vastly more <laughs> and mm. and so figuring out how to talk about that i mean i think that, i think that one of the one of the big challenges that we have with a lot of these things talking about how, how to talk about carbon in a way that makes sense to to most humans um how to talk about these kinds of dynamics like life cycle thinking in a way that that makes sense to most humans means that it's it, it isn't um it isn't part of the sort of general pop culture to be nerding out on it but uh but, but they're really important concepts. You know, figuring out how to communicate them well is, um, there's lots of opportunity to do that. I feel like I've been pulled over for speeding. You have? Hello. Um, so my question is, how do we bring how do we bring the technologies that are being developed by companies like Watertech, uh, like uh, Waterbank, um, how do we bring that to a massive scale? How do we take that beyond just, oh, we're going to go into a needy area of Africa and help these people? How do we bring that to yeah, no, the question. massive scale in the United States where we're building more and more? Yeah. Yeah. Like okay. how, how are those ideas being shared? Okay, so what we're trying to do, and this is where, where the support that we received from Interface this year has been really immensely helpful, is that we set off, you know, we set out to see one whether you could, you know, could you actually come up with an alternative? I mean, it wasn't clear to us that you could even do something at the kind of costs that could make a difference. 
um, then the once those are demonstrated, then in a sense the next phase of our project is the open source. I mean the which is really what we, we are kind of working on at the moment as we're developing these various types. But that's quite complex because these buildings work because of quite an intricate balancing of things. And so while they might look simple, if somebody runs off and just like copies it, there is quite a serious risk that they muck it up. And then you've got evidence that the thing fails. And you've got to work out in the system where you're trying to shift a paradigm, how do you help, you know, how do you manage that kind of process? So that's why it's quite a, it's not a simple undertaking, open source. You actually have to think about it, set up the kind of dialogue, the, the whole kind of system that's going to try to make that be effective rather than just more stuff in the system. We're working with the UN. Uh, we're actually developing a city in, uh, or a, a, a new town now. We're working on uh, developing um, a larger scale model. We've actually done projects for the United States, but we have very interesting laws here about rain and the commons and things like that, which are a whole other tier of complexity. So, um, you know, in terms of the types being able to be effective in poor rural regions. Um, we're doing it by entering into a lot of dialogues with, with large organizations who are already working in that area so that they can see that there is an alternative. And then it, the questions, of course, you know, does that make sense to the communities? Is this what they want? And so on. But we have been approached by everything from communities in the Amazon rainforest who, interestingly, have the same problem with water access because the water systems have been so badly polluted. Um, so that is our, I mean, you've asked the question that we ask ourselves just about every day, you know. <laughs> that is the question, mm -hmm. you know, with this. Last question, and then please come up and, and we'll hang around. We have to close the session after this question. Thanks. Yes, Go ahead. this gentleman over here. Oh. Um, I just, uh, I'm kind of speechless about just the quality of the content and what each of you bring, and so I really appreciate that. It's just been very moving. It just these, yeah. The, these uh, themes around institutionalization and the, the disconnectedness that you each mentioned, that one of you mentioned, and the social complexity and needing to develop develop the the new systems of governance and then the business model uh, and this whole notion of jargon all of that is in this domain of the of the commons of our where we converse and um, I just wanted to I assert that the underlying contradiction for that is that the accounting that we use leaves out about eighty percent of the essential data so there's no basic discussion of objective facts in almost any institutional context 
um, and that metric illiteracy, the, the inability to have a, a, an actual fact-based conversation across disciplines and levels of the hierarchy is, under, is actually the underlying generator of the rest of it. Behavior tr precedes transaction in all cases. Um, my nonprofit is called Commons.org, and I've redesigned accounting so that that doesn't happen. And I'm just really moved by all of your work. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Um, thank, you thank you guys for, for coming. <laughs> you gals.